we're talking about is a message that I love. Okay, so again, I know there's little voices, but lock in right here with me because this is a message that I love. Um, it's a passage that if I could, if I could just ha- take one passage with me uh, onto a desert island, this would be one of the few I would choose, okay, because I love this passage. Um, and so here's, we're going to get into it. We're eventually going to be in 1 Peter if you want to grab, uh, 1 Peter 2 if you want to grab a Bible or open up your Bible. Uh, last week, we began unpacking Uh, We began unpacking what our church is dreaming about for the next five years, what we're going to be working to see in these next five years, okay? And that's what a vision is. We talked about vision. And the first part of that vision is this desire to see revival. We looked at a church in Revelation that also needed revival. Their church had begun to be ineffective, and that ineffectiveness, I think, was ultimately rooted in spiritual complacency. And so their their spiritual climate of their city, uh, I think, is actually a lot like the spiritual climate of our our city. There's lots of good people. Okay, I was at a restaurant last night. Um, We were going to go to Joe T's, but then the inevitable Joe T's audible happened where you're like, we're going to eat on Monday around 3. And so we were like, too busy. So uh, every once in a while we go to Joe T's. And do the tourist game, okay? But we went to some other place that we had never been to, and you know what? The people were really nice there. There's a lot of really nice people. They were very kind, and they were very, uh, yeah, they were just nice. And, uh, and so there's lots of good people in our city, but there's also a lot of people that um, they're very self-sufficient, okay? It's a self-sufficient city, independent city. They're good people because they're good on their own. And, and just like in this church in Revelation, there's people who have forgotten their spiritual neediness and have drifted away from or drifted into boredom with Jesus. So they've drifted from Jesus or just become bored with him. And a lot of that, I think, is because they, they don't have any spiritual neediness. Uh, and so the, 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 rival, the revival, though, that we want to see is not out there in our city, okay? It's actually in here, in our church Uh, in this room, but in us as people. That's where we want to see uh, revival. It's not primarily out there. It's primarily in here. And so why, we had a conversation, a lot of conversations this last week. Why do we think we need revival? Well, there's a component of it, this revival from something and then revival of something. The from something, it, it might be for you that it's a revival from the deception of religious success. Okay, maybe you have this concept like the Laodiceans in Revelation uh, that you've forgotten your desperate need for hope in Jesus and you've become, to content, you've become content to check the boxes of religious activity. And, uh, and then that has actually made you distant from God, not, not closer to him. Maybe you need revival from the disillusionment of religious failure. You've become disillusioned with your own ability to be religiously successful, okay? There's a sense in which your religious failures uh, have caused you to keep your distance from God until you can get it right on your own. So maybe, maybe that's why you need revival. Maybe you need revival from the distraction of life success. You become distracted by the millions of things going on in your life and the seeming irrelevance of Jesus to them, or potentially the real irrelevance of Jesus to those things, because he may not have the same set of priorities as you do, and try as you may to bring him along in your journey, you're not getting any closer with him. And so you also may need revival from the discouragement of suffering, because you have been discouraged by the onslaught the constant beating against the bow of your life of hard things and real suffering. 
and it seems like God isn't there or he doesn't care. So I don't know which of those things you need revival from. I don't know where in particular your soul is at. I've taken as many pulses as I can around our church, and I'm convinced that we do need revival, but not just revival from something, of something. And so that thing that I want to see revival of in my own life, in your life, in the life of our whole church is joyful worship. Matt mentioned it a second ago, but just to say it more clearly, in the next five years, we want to see a revival of joyful worship in our church. And, and this good question came up last week in, in, in our Q&A afterwards, which we're also going to have again today, okay, from my friend John. Uh, it's a good question. Why joyful worship? Why not, why not joyful service or mission or something else, another really good thing? And, and here's why. The, for, for the first reason, like, number one, we need a revival of this because we're implying that it doesn't exist, okay? So the, a revival of something implies that it doesn't exist, not with the breadth and depth that it should or that it could. Um, and so, but the point is not simply that it doesn't exist as it could. The point is that it doesn't exist as it must. Revival, so we want a revival of joyful worship because joyful worship doesn't exist as it must exist, Here's what I mean. It's fundamental to who we are. Joyful worship is not a nice addition for a church to have. It's fundamental to who we are. And here's what I'm saying. As a church, as a group of people underneath the banner of Jesus, we exist to worship God and lead others into that worship by the gospel of Jesus. Okay? That's what the scriptures are going to show us today and what they'll show you over and over again as you read them, that we exist for that. It's not a nice addition to our church. It's not something that we can just add on. It's essential to who we are. Okay? So that's why we're saying if we're going to chart our course towards something, it's going to be not a revival of anything else but joyful worship. It's essential. Okay? And so am I saying, like, we need more excitement in our singing or something? Like, is that what I'm getting at? And Like, no, not, no, that's not what I'm getting at. Um, although I do think joy, joyful worship certainly does show up in the songs that we sing. Uh, it's, it's much more, it's not less than the songs, but it's much more than the songs that we sing, okay? And so let's get into this passage in God's word that will help us zero in on what joyful worship is all about. That's why we're here in 1 Peter 2. Um, and, and here's where we're heading, just the message. If you wanted to put it in your pocket, here's what the message is. We are a people redefined by Jesus and recreated for joyful worship. We are a people redefined by Jesus and recreated for joyful worship. And the movements of the text, the way that the text moves, if you, if you need kind of anchors in your mind, which I oftentimes do, it, the anchors are who we are, why we exist, and how we came to be. Who we are why we exist, and how we came to be. And, and just in getting into 1 Peter, it's, it's, it's called 1 Peter because it was written by a guy named Peter, okay? And uh, he's not just any old guy, all right? He actually was one of uh, Jesus' closest companions in his life on this earth. Uh, one of the guys who walked most closely with Jesus. And, uh, um, and just uh, honestly, a character in the scriptures that I really love. Uh, and he's writing to these Christians that are spread throughout the ancient world. Okay, so if you read the intro, that's who he's writing to. And they're enduring, if, as you read throughout the whole letter, enduring persecutions and challenges to their faith that are really hard. And despite these things, here's what he's doing. He's calling them to live lives of joyful worship. And so specifically, right before verse 9, which is where we're going to get in, uh, into the text, 1 Peter 2, 9. Right before that, Peter was just explaining how Jesus 
is the dividing line, uh, the cornerstone that either that you will e- we will either build our lives on or trip over one or the other. Jesus is the dividing line, and uh, and we don't determine how Jesus fits into God's story, but rather Jesus and our response to Him determines how we fit into God's story. And so, as people who have entrusted ourselves to Jesus, here's what He says about us. Verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's good. Okay, so what, what, what he's saying is what we exist to do is based on who we are, and that's where he starts. What we exist to do is based on who we are. Okay, so that's where he starts. Verse 9, but you, so go back, keep, keep, keep your eyes on it. But you, and he's talking about Christians here. He's talking about if you, if you're somebody who is trusted in Christ, then he's talking to you. Okay? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And so what Peter does here is something that's pretty incredible. Uh, He goes after these fundamental identities of human beings. Okay? And so what I mean by fundamental identity, a place, something that that we oftentimes use to define us. Okay? This is something that's very important to who we are. So look at the things that he goes after. He says uh, race vocation and nationality okay these are the things that 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 we we use these things oftentimes to understand who we are okay race is a big deal uh vocation is a big deal nationality is a big deal okay and uh and so these are important things to us and if not important to you they're still important to the people around you okay certainly to the governments that you live uh underneath okay and so look at this race uh you're, you're a chosen race Race, I was at a, a Dash fundraising event uh, this last week, and, uh, and there was a man giving his testimony of having to seek asylum in the United States. And, and race isn't just a big deal in the United States, it's a big deal all over the world. And really this word is getting at this difference of peoples, okay? And so what, what happened to this Ethiopian man is that other Ethiopians who were from a different tribe were, had threatened his life. And so he's having to escape uh, from this threat to his life because of a difference in his, ultimately in his race and the group that he's a part of. You see that? It's a big deal to people. Uh, nationality. So if you go to Arlington National Cemetery, there's just all these white stones, all of them, just rows and rows of stones of people who have laid down their life in service to our country. It's their nationality that led them to lay down their life. It's a big deal to who they are. And then lastly, vocation. This one's not quite as like heavy, but it is equally as relevant in your life. Like I know that vocation's a big deal because if we have a conversation, I, I have to tell people all the time that I'm a pastor, okay? And, and that comes up all the time. Why? Because they're asking, what do you do here in Fort Worth? All right? It's going to be one of the first three questions that you ask somebody or they ask you just in any conversation. And we do that because it's an important part of who we are, okay? It helps to define who we are in other people's eyes. But Peter, here's what he's doing. He's telling us uh, that who we are is redefined by who God is and who we are to him. And he redefines these things for us. These things that are so important to who we are, he redefines them. So there's something that's deeper and truer about you He's saying that you're fundamentally defined 
by who you are to God. You see that? You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So our identity comes from what defines us. And, and identity is one of those slippery words. Um, and the best way I know how to just give a handle to it is it's, it's wherever you get your meaning, significance, or security. And I have to ask myself that all the time. Something has lodged itself deep in my identity whenever it's the place from which I'm drawing my meaning, significance, or security. And so a question for you today would just be, uh, if, you're, if you're in Christ, how are where's your identity really coming from? Where are you drawing your meaning, your significance, or your security from? It could be from your race, your nationality, your vocation, your status in Fort Worth, your uh, relationship to another person, uh, your, um, your job, your anything. We get our identity from all over the place, okay? And so that's not the only incredible thing that Peter's doing in terms of going after fundamental parts of your identity that he, that he just went after in terms of redefining you and us, okay? So it's not the only incredible thing. He's, these aren't random categories that he picked. It's not just like, hey, these are nice. Uh, it, Peter is referencing what was true for God's people in the Old Testament. This is this amazing thing that he does. He says what is true for them in the Old Testament for God's people is true for us today. Look at it again. Who are we? We are a chosen race. Do you know where that comes from? Deuteronomy 6. Is that what it was? No, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, sorry. Uh, so Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, read it with me. For you are a people. This is God speaking to the Israelites. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery with the hand, uh, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What was true for them is now true for us. You are chosen. And that defines you more than your race. More than your race. It defines you. Now, secondly, the, uh, we're a royal priesthood and a holy nation. That comes from ex straight out of Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Uh, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this means more fundamental to who you are than your job or your nationality, uh, it is the truth that we are part of what no, is known as the priesthood of all believers, okay? And these royal priests, that, that, that context for these royal priests, these were priests that weren't just in general service in a particular kingdom. They were the king's special priests. They had a unique intimacy and service to the king. That's what defines you now more than your vocation or your nationality or your race. It's how you relate to God. And so uh, in terms, like finally in terms of who we are, he calls us, uh, we call, he calls us a people for God's possession. Now, some, something in you and something in a lot of people uh, would just reject this idea, okay? They would say, uh, I don't belong to anyone or anything. But the thing is, is that's just not true. Not, not in your actual experience. The things that you most identify with, the things that you most deeply value, 
you belong to them in a unique way. So if you just think, I didn't watch any college football yesterday. Okay, I missed it all. But honestly, at this point in the season, I'm not sure that any meaningful games are being played. And um, I'm still confused on why, like, Texas A&M is playing Lamar. If, you're, if you went to Lamar, that's great. It's probably a great school. Yeah, good for you guys. All right. Um, but it doesn't, I mean, A&M's playing, they pay them millions of dollars. Okay, do you know that? Like, lots of money to just to play them. I'm like, this is a weird situation we have on our hands. Nevertheless, what's crazy, hundreds of thousands of people yesterday wore maroon or orange or purple or red or whatever your school's colors are. Why? I belong to this team. Because you value that team. All right? And so the things you most identify with, you in a unique way belong to. But here's what's amazing about who we are in Christ. You want to know what's amazing? We're not stored away in one of God's like storage units somewhere. People have a, people, a lot of people have storage units. Okay? If you do, it's interesting. Storage units, in terms of commercial real estate, it's one of like, it's a very hot like segment of commercial real estate because there's so much of it going in. But we're not tucked away in some storage unit of God. How do I know? You don't put your treasured possessions in storage units. And that's exactly what we are. Treasured possession. He treasures us. What a crazy thing. Now here's where worship enters the equation. Remember, revival of joyful worship. Here's where worship enters the equation. We worship what, what most deeply defines us. It's what imparts to us our meaning, significance, and security, so the thing that is most valuable. Where our identity has drifted, our worship will drift. Okay, keep that in mind. Now, because if we want to see a revival of joyful worship in our church, okay, we want to see, we want to see, I want to see that. And if you want to see that, um, then we need to understand that we're fundamentally redefined by our connection to God, okay? Who we are is fundamentally redefined by Jesus. We're, uh, we're defined by the one who isn't... Uh, uh, just a valuable thing in the universe. He's the most valuable thing in the universe. That's how we are defined, okay? And so Peter continues, and he moves from where, from who we are to why we exist, okay? So now we know who we are. We're God's uh, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. We're his treasured possession. Who we are, okay? Now he's going to move into why we exist, okay? What the, another way of thinking this is what is our purpose? What is our mission? What is, why, why do we exist here? Why are you on this planet, okay? What are you doing here? And, uh, and so here's how he answers it. He says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you exist that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that is why we exist, not just as individuals, but as a church. We are proclaimers of his excellencies. Okay, and now that is worship. You understand what worship is? This is right at the heart of what worship is. Because to worship something, I, I, I've thought about this. I've, if you've thought about this more in the last year, then let's talk, because I would love to talk. This is almost all I think about right now, okay? And what is this worship thing? And some of the, one of the best ways I can think about it, it, to worship something is to treasure it above all things. Whatever you worship is what you treasure, not just a little bit, above all things. What's that one thing that will be treasured most in your life? And that's going to connect back into your resources, your time, your thoughts, your praise. The etymology of the word wor worship actually comes uh, from worth-ship, okay? 
And uh, that means to declare the worthiness or worth of something. And in this case, Peter is saying that we exist to declare the worth, the excellencies, the majesty of God. That's why we exist, to treasure him above all things. And so uh, what's interesting is that you can be sure of this one thing, that we proclaim the excellencies of something. You are a worshiper. I don't even have to know you. I know that you're a worshiper because we all are worshipers. All the time and all of our action. I, I, yesterday, this is not in my notes, but yesterday I put together a trampoline for my daughter, okay? And it's not a big trampoline. And yet, more than two and a half hours went into that trampoline's construction. And, uh, I, you know, I, my big goal was just to put it together once. Uh, you know, because inevitably when you're putting these things together, you end up putting them together like twice because you take them apart because you missed that one thing. So I put it, I, I did it like one and a half times, I think. But what was amazing was how much sweat I put into that trampoline's construction. Like, uh, I haven't sweat that much in a long time. I work out a, a good amount. Like, I exercise. I try to sweat that much, okay? But this time I was, and, and, and so why was I happy to do that? I love my baby girl, and she loves that trampoline. I just like hearing her say trampoline. It's amazing. <laughs> She's it's really fun, okay? But we are all worshipers because we are all valuing things. But worship, what I want you to see is what you value above all things. And, uh, and so our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, they reveal something in our lives. Our thoughts, our attitudes, and actions, we've talked about this. Uh, they reveal something in our hearts that something's broken. Our worship is broken. And the reason why it's broken is because we don't. We don't value above all things the thing that's most valuable in the universe, right? Every sin, every amount of evil, everything that's broken in this world and in your life, I can trace back to this one thing, broken worship. I promise you, the most horrific things in history or the most subtle, nuanced little thing yesterday for you, I can trace back to a broken worship in your life. So Romans 1 says it this way, uh, that uh, we're born with hearts that reject God or hearts that exchange, exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We're broken worshipers. And so uh, here's this funny, interesting reality about us as broken worshipers is that we sing about what we worship. Okay? You can tell because you can just turn on the radio. But whatever we worship, it will somehow make its way out into a song. Maybe, maybe you're not a singer, but it's going to make its way into your praise. Okay? But now as people who are defined by Jesus... Our worship now is concentrated on him. And when I mean worship, I mean now our declarative worship about who he is. This is, this is where it shows up. It shows up in Psalm 95. Because the question I'm wanting you to ask is, is worship singing? And I'm going to say, yes. Worship is singing. Look at Psalm 95. He says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. It continues on verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And so I think we need to hear this today. Uh, if I have a family meal and in that family meal... 
I, I give no amount of affection or uh, expressed love for my wife during that meal. And yet, in all these other settings, in all these other places, I'm all the time talking about her and how great she is and what she's doing to her fam- for our family. But never does it make it into our family gathering. I think that's weird. I think it's sad. I think it's incomplete worship. You see that? And this, this is when our family's together. So shouldn't our worship of our God make it into this space? Yes. Yes, it should. Now, I'm going to continue, but isn't worship more than singing? Yes. Yes, it is. You've got to know that. 1 Corinthians 10.31 explains that there's not a part of your life that is off limits to glorifying God. There's not one It's a realm of your life, not one relationship, one activity, one task. Nothing is off limits for you to glorify God. Some of my friends are here today. They they started a movie theater, okay? And so does that movie theater exist apart from glorifying God for their life? No. No, no, no. Absolutely. That space, that, that venture or this relationship, whatever it is, that is a place in which we are worshiping. God. And so if our worship doesn't come in here, then I think it will be lacking. And I think if it stays in here, then I think it is lacking. A revival of joyful worship is a revival of joyful worship in here, through our singing, through our preaching, through our serving, and out there. Both. Okay? And so this gathering is a space for worship. It doesn't mean, though, that you come in here every week rightly worshiping. I'm actually counting on the fact that you're not, that you're going to come in here and your worship is going to drift throughout the week. You know why? Because mine does. Mine does. Okay? And so it means that we want this to be a place where your worship is fueled for worship beyond this space. Okay? So worship doesn't stay here, but it is cultivated here. In fact... The rest of Peter's letter that he's writing just further explains how to live out this worship in the midst of a broken, hostile world. So if you want to keep reading First Peter, he's just explaining how to go and worship everywhere else. So worship can't remain in here, but we certainly want it to exist in here, be revived in here, be sustained in here, and be sent out from here. Just so you know what we're aiming for with this gathering. This is not, a, it's not just kind of a thing that we go through the motions of. I desperately want those things to be happening for your soul every week. Okay? Now, Peter, he continues and he explains that why we exist, our worship, is rooted in this reality that we were brought from darkness to marvelous light. He's actually worshiping, uh, worshiping praising God in the midst of that sentence. Okay? Why is it rooted there. Why is that where he says our worship is anchored? Because that is the place that transfers you from one place to another. It's the place that you get redefined. That process of coming from darkness to light is the redefinition of your soul. And this is what has honestly captivated me for the last month, okay? It's that, that process of being brought, brought from darkness to light that makes you chosen, royal, and holy, so all this thing, all the who you are that's leading to why you exist, that all happens through this transfer from darkness to light. Now, if you've heard the gospel, you've heard this, but I want to tell it to you again, okay? And so look closely at the transfer that's happening. There's, there's a song that just came out by Hillsong. It's called King of Kings. And I've listened to it probably 50 times this week, okay? I love this song, but and we're going to sing it, I hope, later on this month, okay? So here's some of the words from that song. It says, in the darkness we were waiting Without hope, without light. Listen to this. Where do, you think, where do you think they got these lyrics? 
I think they, I think they got them from 1 Peter 2. In the darkness we were waiting, without hope, without light, till from heaven you came running, there was mercy in your eyes. So here's what it is to be in Christ. It's to be a new creation, brought from darkness to light. You're recreated as a joyful worshiper. That's what it means to be in Christ, is to be recreated as a joyful worshiper. Now, here's what I want you to like lean into this with me, because why joyful worship? Are we just making stuff up? Okay, are we just setting our course because it sounds nice? Why are we going, I mean, I'm telling you, we're going to bend the resources of our church. We're going to rearrange our time. We're going to do everything we can to see a revival of joyful worship. So why joyful worship? And I think Peter helps us understand where the joy of joyful worship comes from when he reminds us how we became who we are. So we already said who we are. We said why we exist. But how did we become who we are? Look at this. He goes back. He's, he doubles back on this in his own writing. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is, a, this is a logic statement. Once you were not, now you are. Once you had not, now you have. We are fundamentally redefined by mercy. We have received mercy. Now, I, wanna, I want you to do this in your heart and in your mind. Ask this. What kind of mercy is he talking about? What kind of mercy is this that we have received? Is it, is it a partial mercy? Is it a mercy that kind of gets you down the road towards becoming one of God's chosen people? And that's not the kind of mercy that it is. It's a complete and it's a finished mercy. It's past tense. It is mercy received. Do you not know this? Christian, that is for you. All right, you've got to see this. Now, there's a guy, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'm just going to keep, keep the streak of mentioning him up because I've done it like four weeks in a row, but Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says it always is weird to him when people aren't surprised by being a Christian. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, of course I am. Of course you are. Do you realize what has happened to make you one of these? You don't, you, either you think your sin is small, or you think you're really great, so, something, something's off. When the realities of this mercy sink in, joy is one of the things that will be produced in your life. I am, I am, so, I am more certain of that than almost anything, okay? Here's, here's how John Piper, he defines joy, okay? It's another slippery word, but we want to talk about Christian joy, joyful worship. So why this joy piece, okay? Piper defines it this way, and he thought about it a lot. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Now, by good feeling, he doesn't mean surface-level happiness, okay? So be careful with this idea of feeling. He's not talking about something that's anywhere near the surface of your life or your body, anything. He says a good feeling of the soul. It's soul-level gladness. That's what joy is. And it's sturdy. It can outlast seasons of suffering. It can grow in the toughest of seasons because of the depth of truth that it's rooted in. That's why joy is sturdy. It's not happiness. It's deeper. The idea of joyful worship is not a new idea, and it's not even our idea. Westminster, the bunch of guys who wrote this shorter catechism, a way of asking questions and answering them to, to, to give you a foundation of a worldview, they thought about it for a long time. 
the church over a long, long, long time has been thinking about what is it that you are most fundamentally about as a person? What are you supposed to be doing here? And here's what they came up with. The chief end of man, you exist to do this, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Joy is right there with worship. Do you see that? What these catechism writers knew, lean in, we're almost done, which would be like the shortest message of all time. So uh, what, they, what they knew is something that, um, that, I've, that, that has captivated me. It's what was on the line with this mercy. What was on the line when you were waiting in the darkness without hope? What was on the line? Consider for a moment where you would have been without this mercy coming into your life, believer. If this mercy had not met you there, called you out of darkness, if it had not met you, here's the the picture that I get that's broken my heart like a thousand times. I've read this book recently called All the Light That We Cannot See. And and in the very opening pages of this book, there's a girl named Marie Lore. And Marie is, um, she's blind. She became blind. And the story, she's the the protagonist of the story. And she's standing there in a building, in in an apartment in this city. And the city was about to be bombed by the Allied forces in World War II. Okay, it's in France. And, um, and so she's standing there in this apartment. She's blind. Her uncle, who has been t- who's taken over caring for her, everybody else around her is gone. She's alone in this apartment. She's standing there. And the Allied forces, she, she's in Nazi-occupied France. And so the Allied forces, they're coming. They're going to destroy this place. And, um, and she's, she's there in this room. And uh, she hears this fluttering at the window. And so she makes her way over to the window because she knows everything about this little space that she's in. And she, she hears the fluttering. She pulls out the, the, the leaf, the pamphlet that was dropped by allied forces. And she can, she can feel it. There's nothing she can read on there. And, and, uh, and she smells it. The, the ink is fresh. And so she's, she's sitting there. And you know what's written on this? It's, it's, a, it's a note that says, get out. Get out of the city now. Because destruction is coming. She can't read it. She can't read it. She has no way of knowing that destruction is coming right for her soul. And that's, that's where we were without God's mercy. Th- that's who we were without God's mercy. We were standing there blind without knowing that destruction was coming for us. And then God met us. And then he came. He came into the apartment and grabbed our hands and led us out of the city into safety forever. That's what was on the line. And so what is our future now? What is the new destiny we've been given? We've been given a new destiny if you're in Christ. Revelation 5, 9 through 10 says this. You can read it, I think, up there. And they sang a new song. This is you, believer. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's you. Forever. The alternative destiny that's outlined in Revelation 21 that we didn't talk about last week is actually a lake of fire that burns forever. 
that's what was on the line with God's mercy. That's what redefines you as a mercy that brings you from one place to another. And so how, again, Christian, did you get this destiny? He tells you over and over again, you were chosen. You're a chosen race. You were brought from darkness into marvelous light because he called you out of it. Okay, there's a story. There's a, um, uh, the Conleys, are, they're fostering a, a tiny, tiny baby right now. This baby is so tiny, uh, like one week old tiny. And, um, and when I see this baby, I'm reminded of this little boy that I met one time named Daniel. And he was an infant. He was about the same age. And when I met Daniel, he had been adopted into a family in, in this village in Haiti. But what you don't know is that Daniel, like a week before that, he had been left in a latrine by his mom. A newborn infant dropped into this 20-plus foot latrine, which is filled with everything gross and dark in this world. And then covered by a concrete toilet. He was dropped and left to die. And what happened was somebody in that village, they heard a baby crying. And they traced it to that latrine. And they took shovels and whatever they had to do to break off the top of this latrine. They had to destroy this toilet. And then they retched down into the feces and everything else. And they pulled from that place a tiny baby boy. And they cleaned him up. And a man named William, who's the pastor of that, of that village, adopted him into their family. Now, here's what is never going to be said by that little boy. He will never say, you know how I became part of my family? You know, I was one time left for dead, but I crawled my way out of this latrine. And then I crawled my way over to my dad's doorstep. And I got up on my dad's doorstep and he said, hey, if you can clean yourself up well enough, then you can be a part of our family. That's not what he's, ne he's never going to tell that story. Don't you know that? He's going to say, no, my dad loved me enough to come get me. My dad loved me enough to wash me off and make me clean and then bring me into his family. That is what it means to be a Christian. That is your story. You have been chosen, brought from darkness into light. That is your story, Christian. Okay? And so when you get that, when you get that, when that truth is going to make its way down deep in your heart, grip your soul and change your life, when that happens, okay, a joy is going to mark your worship. I promise you that. I promise you that. And you know how I know that is because Peter models that very thing for us. This is a super long quote. You should never do this when you're preaching, okay? But I'm going to do it because Peter did it at the beginning of this letter. And so you got to see what he said. He said, blessed be, he's, he's worshiping God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfair fading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's just going off about the riches of what it means to belong to King Jesus. In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Joy can handle the hard stuff. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now hear this. Though you have not seen him, none of you have. You love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with what? With joy 
that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So why do we want to see a revival, not just of worship, but joyful worship in our church? I think the joyfulness in our worship is where these ancient words are coming to life in us. I think that when joy grips your worship, it starts making its way out of your worship. That is where these ancient words are coming to life in you. They're not just an idea. They're not just a story. They're not just some history lesson. It's the gospel coming to life in you, and that's what I want. I don't want you to hear another story. I don't want you to read the Jesus Storybook Bible and see really nice characters. I want you to see a man who lived and who died and has now redefined your life with mercy. That's what I want. That's what I want for our church. For those things not to just be true, but true in us. So how can we begin to pursue this? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to uh, remember to relish your loyalty. You know, it's like a really weird sentence, but I think you might remember it. Remember to relish your loyalty. Here's how I know you'll remember it. There's a character named Prince Wednesday on one of my daughter's favorite shows. You guys know Prince Wednesday? He's on Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. All right? There's a lot of things about that show that I'm like okay with, I tolerate, because the songs are fun. But in uh, Prince Wednesday, largely is somebody I tolerate. Because, um, man, I, I just... I'm like, I get it. You're the prince. Royally this, royally that, right? If you've watched it, you know. Everything is the royal this. Or I'm going to, a royal welcome to you. And I'm like, dude, I get it. You're the prince. Your dad's the king. Good for you. Like, I don't know why they're not more thrown off by that, okay? But here's the deal. I think we can all learn something from Prince Wednesday. As weird as that sounds. He knows something that most Christians have forgotten, that he is royal, and he never lets anybody forget it. <laughs> but he hasn't forgotten it. A lot of Christians have. Royally this, royally that. That's how you live your life, your minute to minute. Royally this, royally that. So... Not just remember that you are royalty. Remember how you became royalty. Remember how you became royalty. Think about my friend, little baby Daniel, who was pulled from a pit. Retell your story, but retell it as one defined by mercy. Tell anybody who will listen to you your story. And I think that when these truths are alive in us, then we can proclaim the excellencies of God. When those truths are alive in you, when God brings those to life in you, and I think he will. I think that's why you're here. I don't think you're here just because, oh, you, just, you happen to be at this place at this time. and you came. I think he's here because he wants to bring those things to life in you. And when he does, proclaim them. Proclaim them. Who? To who? Proclaim them to God. You want to see your spiritual life come, come to a state of vibrancy that it hasn't, just talk to God and tell him. Tell him the truth, first of all. If you don't see his excellencies, would you ask him to show them to you? Moses did it. God, I want to see your glory. God tell him, told him it's going to kill you, but here, I'll show you a version. Right? Ask him, but tell him. Proclaim them to God. 
Some, some of the sweetest moments of worship I will ever have in my lifetime are just in a place that I just get to be with him. Just tell everything in creation that would listen that my God is amazing. Tell yourself. Uh, I've heard it said that one of the, our biggest issues in life is that we listen to ourselves more than we talk to ourselves. You need to tell yourself royally this, royally that. Talk to yourself. Proclaim the excellencies of God to your own heart. Let the words about God, let God's words about you sink in. Words matter. Words have, words have I'm sure of this, defined your life in powerful ways, in a negative way and in a positive way. Let God's words define your life. Let them sink into who you are. This is going to require time and engagement beyond this space. Uh, so do that. Do that with other believers. Help them let God's word sink into their lives. Help them. And then proclaim these excellencies to any other people that God gives you time and space to share your story with. Listen to them. Listen to them. Listen to them and then proclaim God's excellencies to them. That's what evangelism is. Now, some of you, I just I know like this... Uh, Christian joy being this good feeling in your soul, you, you just know, I just know this is true for some of you, that you just don't have a good feeling in your soul right now. And um, the, uh, Charles Spurgeon said this to these exact people in his church. He said, the day will come, dear friend, when your cheeks all befouled with weeping, your cheeks all marked with tears, shall be washed and made fair to look upon. The day's coming for you. Your eyes may be weary with waiting and watching and red with weeping, but that weeping shall endure only for a night. Joy cometh in the morning, as surely as the morning cometh after the night. Now here's what he says, and I want to do this with you. Bear your sorrows bravely, for they are appointed of your heavenly Father in supreme wisdom. Bear them joyfully, for they will bring forth to you the peaceable fruits of righteousness. I'll do it with you. We'll do it together. But that's our, our, that's our charge. And the last thing I'll tell you is if you're not a follower of Jesus in here, people are, people are bringing friends into this space. You're trusting us enough to bring a friend into this space who doesn't know where they stand with Jesus. But if you are that friend or you have that friend, here's the only thing that I'm telling you is to receive the radical grace that fuels joyful worship. Just receive it. It's a gift. And God's offering it to you today. Heavenly Father, would you help us? Would you meet us here today? We can't conjure up your Holy Spirit. Thankfully, we are just at your mercy. But your mercy is something that we can trust perfectly. There's nothing that I trust more on this planet than the mercy of my God. Because he is the one who sent Jesus for me. You are the one who came and rescued me. You are the one who came with mercy in your eyes for me. And for my friends, would you, Holy Spirit, apply this truth in our lives today? Not let us walk, in, walk out of here unchanged, untransformed, unbelieving. Oh, God, would you, would you revive joyful worship in this place and from this place? In us and from us. Would you do that? Not because we're worthy of it, but because you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And here's how we get to respond, church. We get to sing. 
we get to sing songs that we were thoughtfully chosen uh, just for today. So uh, sing. Pray, listen, cry, whatever you got to do. And also come and receive communion. These things we come, these are just the embodiment of sorts of Jesus' blood and his body. They're not the actual embodiment of these things. They're just a reminder of something that you're going to put into your mouth, swallow down into your stomach, and on the way, let it transform your heart. It doesn't have magic power, but God's grace is powerful in your life, and this is a picture of it. So come receive that if you're part of God's family. If you're not, if you haven't trusted in Christ, you're still trying to figure out this whole thing, come talk to me in the back. Ask a friend. Do whatever you got to do, but don't wait on that. Don't wait on that. Come when you're ready.